In the United States, mosquito season has grown in 76% of major cities since the 1980s due to increases in hot and humid weather conditions. You're listening to Cooler Earth, a podcast of climate exchange. Your weekly dive into energy transitions, sustainability, environmental politics, and all things climate change. Each week, we feature special guests and in-depth discussions with your hosts, Amanda Griffiths, Ryan Maya, and Maria Virginia Olano. So climate change affects human health in many different ways. There's three main ones. First, directly in extreme weather events, flooding, heat waves. Secondly, through indirect impact mediated through societal systems, such as undernutrition, mental illness from stress induced from agricultural changes, food insecurity, violent conflict caused by climate change, etc. And thirdly, through indirect impacts from environmental and ecosystem changes, which shifts the patterns of disease-carrying mosquitoes or increases in waterborne diseases due to warmer conditions. And so today on the podcast, we will be focusing on this third factor, the ways in which climate change affects vector-borne diseases and their spread around the world. So a vector-borne disease is when an infection is transmitted by an arthropod. And so exactly, that's kind of just when we talk about insects. So it's mosquitoes, ticks, they're cold-blooded. And that's why they're so sensitive to changes in weather patterns and climate, and why we see their geographic ranges changing more with changing global weather patterns. So it's not like when we're talking about mice or, or other warm-blooded mammals um, who can also be vectors in, in carrying diseases. So their cold blood is what makes them more susceptible to climate change, right? Because they exactly. need to migrate and change their ranges in able to be able to survive. And in turn, mm-hmm. they end up affecting populations that they didn't before. Right. So these aren't new diseases we're talking yeah. about, but they are new geographic ranges of those diseases. So it's affecting new areas of people. Right. And while this direction is very difficult to predict, there is mounting evidence. And the IPCC fifth assessment report has an entire chapter in health and climate change in which there is evidence that certain vectors such as mosquitoes are changing their range. So for example, dengue fever, chikungunya Mm -hmm. and West Nile virus are emerging and popping up in places that they didn't used to before. And that is northward in the world. These are tropical diseases, which Mm -hmm. usually affect areas along the equator, but now they're changing range, which is very scary because that means populations that have never faced these diseases are vulnerable to them now. Right. And also with rising global temperatures, lengthening the season that we see mosquitoes breeding. And so on top of increasing their geographic spread, we're also seeing a longer period of time where they are active and possibly infecting people. Right. So even in places that have seen such diseases before, so for example, the case of Lyme disease in the Northeast United mm-hmm. States, it has been here for a while, but incidences of Lyme disease have doubled from 1991 to 2013. And right. this is due to changes in, in weather and patterns mm-hmm. that allow these ticks that carry the disease to thrive in more expanded ranges. Definitely. And that's something that I saw firsthand when I was at the State House. Even in the past two years, we would get updated emails with the number of people that had been infected by Lyme disease every week because it was such a big issue for every district and every community. So 
dealing with exactly how to go about lessening the incidence of it, but also dealing with people who are infected um, and the insurance implications, it just created this whole new realm of what to do with these vast increases in Lyme disease. Right, because we're not prepared. And one big one that made headlines a couple of years back was Zika. Right. And Zika had been around for decades Mm -hmm. and only... A couple years ago, it started making headlines because it spread so widely and it reached Florida and the Keys. It did. So it was July 29th back in 2016 when we saw the first locally transmitted cases of Zika, and that was in Miami. And even before then, there were lots of reports of people who had been traveling, who had brought it back and were transmitting it to other people. And it really wasn't on the the radar in the United States and on the news until we started seeing the cases really increase and it became just a daily part of the news that summer and it's expected to keep spreading northward so we'll see what happens once the warmer season comes this year and what it looks like in the United States too. Right and it doesn't just depend on warmer climates it's also a factor of rainfall because it is in standing waters that mosquitoes are able to breed Mm -hmm. and breed more quickly so when we have changing rainfall patterns that also affects the breeding rates and ranges of these disease-carrying mosquitoes. So in the case of malaria, the WHO reports that in 2015, approximately 3.2 billion people, that's nearly half of the world's population, were at risk of malaria. Sub-Saharan Africa carries a disproportionately high share of malaria cases and deaths. So due to climate change, countries that are more closely aligned to the equator, the more semi-arid parts of southern Africa are expected to experience increased precipitation and warmth, and that's an estimated 1.4 to 1.6 degrees by 2050. So the WHO predicts that 2 to 3 degrees warming could put up to 7% more people at risk of malaria. It's also important to consider the fact that when we talk about public health, it isn't just climate change that is affecting everyone. It affects disproportionately those places and countries that don't have the health infrastructure. And so mm-hmm. as the climate continues to change, these effects will continuously be felt disproportionately in places that don't have the infrastructure to support their citizens and to actually prevent worst case scenarios. So today on the show, we wanted to look at is the more human side. What right. does it look like when a community is impacted by this disease? Because I think coming from places where we haven't really seen an outbreak like that, um, at least in our lifetimes, we're, we're a bit removed. So we can talk about these numbers um, and the statistics and what it's going to look like with changes in a lot of the geographic distributions of these diseases with climate change. But I think it's important to look at the areas that are being impacted right now. And put and, a human face to exactly. the problem. Yeah. So to talk a little bit more about this and to share his personal experience having lived in Mozambique for a few years working in malaria prevention, we have John Pontillo with us today. So so John's an associate consultant for a social impact consulting firm called FSG. And there he works as part of case teams to help clients articulate their goals within a given framework and then create design solutions to social challenges. But before he joined FSG, John served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Mozambique, and it was there that he co-created a project to reduce malaria contraction rates by empowering residents to manage a project to install screens on the windows of their homes. Hi, John. Welcome. Thanks for coming and talking to us today. Thanks for having me. 
So we are talking today a bit about your time in the Peace Corps in Mozambique and some of the work you're doing currently in Boston. So how does the Peace Corps exactly work? Do you choose the location that you're sent to? Did you have an idea of kind of where you wanted to go? And did you have any say in the matter or did you just kind of land somewhere? So it's interesting because I was the last group of volunteers that didn't get a choice in where they went. Nowadays, you choose what country you want to serve in and what area you want to work. But so when I applied, there were 72 countries that I could potentially be sent to in any range of different areas. I kind of, I had some background in French and I thought that I was going to be sent to West Africa, but ended up that I went to Mozambique. And so Mozambique, that is Portuguese where they speak there. Yes. So you didn't know any Portuguese. So you land in a country not knowing the language, not really knowing anybody there. How did you assimilate into the community that you ended up in? Well, Peace Corps does a good job in the first 10 weeks of training you. So you have intensive language learning courses and you live with a host family and they teach you how to do the things that you're not used to doing in America, like um, boiling water for a bucket bath or preparing a chicken to eat. There was a fast learning period where you learn to do those things as well as learn the language for most of the day. I served in a, a new site in Mozambique, and so there weren't previous Peace Corps volunteers that were there. And when I arrived, and this is a common experience for volunteers who are new to an area, they assume that you're a spy or you have some ulterior motivation other than why would someone come to just live and try and help out whatever circumstances that can be helped. And so it was like difficult in the first couple of weeks to talk to people, to have people accept me and to want to learn about me. A lot of people avoided me. Um, and I remember it's very hot where I lived. And so I, I used to go for runs early in the morning, like 6 a.m. And I was stopped on one of my runs one time by a guy on a motorcycle. And he said, oh, you're running. Do you play soccer? And I played soccer in college. So I said, yes. He's like, oh, you should come to our tryout later today. It's like, okay. And he showed up at my house later that afternoon and he got me and we went out to the tryout for the neighborhood team. And I played well enough that I made the team. And that was the thing that led to my assimilation in my neighborhood. Once people saw that I was a soccer player, they trusted me a lot more <laughs> and realized that I was just another person like them. And that helped a lot to bridge that gap. So for people who aren't familiar with are you assigned a specific project that you work on while you're there? And what were you sent there to work on? Mm -hmm. So every volunteer is matched with a host organization. So I did public health and community development. My host organization was a community-based organization made up of Mozambicans who oversaw 30 health centers in our province. And our, our reason to be was to come up with programs and initiatives from the most logistical to the most theoretical to allow people in rural areas to adhere to HIV and AIDS medication. Some examples of that are in the rainy season, roads will flood, and so you can't physically get the medication to people who live in rural areas. So how can we come up with ways to um, overcome that? Another issue with HIV and AIDS medication is there's a lot of, or HIV and AIDS, is there's a lot of stigma surrounding it. And so a lot of times, given that Mozambique is such a patriarchal society, women have a tough time accessing the medicine. So there were groups called Mais Bada Mais, which means Mothers for Mothers, 
which would be a way for mothers to come together and talk about different ways to cook healthy and nutritious meals for themselves and their children who had HIV and AIDS. But also it was a way for individuals, um, there were like six in a group, and each month one person would go to the hospital to pick up the medication or receive the medication for everyone in the group. So it wasn't suspicious when you were going to the hospital every month. So you couldn't, it couldn't really be known that you were potentially, you have HIV or AIDS because you had to go for regular checkups. There were also other initiatives whereby if your viral load was uh, low enough and your uh, CD4 count was high enough, you didn't need to go to the hospital every month for a checkup. So there were different programs that were in place that allowed for people to avoid the stigma and adhere their treatments. So it's interesting that you mentioned floods because that's something that is projected to only get worse as climate change worsens and access to uh, health centers, community centers, medicine is just one of the ways in which that's going to impact people's lives and public health. What other ways did you see during your time there or in general that climate change impacts public health? Yeah, so our, our soccer team played every week on the weekend. And the team was very tight-knit. It was a community team. Everybody came out for the games. But if there were a death in the neighborhood, we would not play our game. Everyone in the whole neighborhood would go to the hospital to pay their respects and then to the burial. And I noticed in the first year, the first rainy season, we missed a lot of games because a lot of people in our neighborhood passed away. So each week we were going to the hospital and then to the burial site to pay our respects. And a lot of that was due to the fact that there were heavy rains that year, higher than the average amount of rain that comes typically in a season in where I lived in Mozambique. And there was a lot of standing water and so mosquitoes were able to breathe more easily. And the fact that that coupled with the fact that it's hot at night, people sleep with their windows and doors open. So malaria carrying mosquitoes uh, had easy access to people. And typically younger, like five or younger and older people with other maladies passed from catching malaria. The other thing that was water related was cholera because there aren't great sewage systems in Mozambique where I lived. People would get their water from pumps. But when the rains come, they, the rains come after the driest, hottest part of the year when people don't have access to their crops. And so they're prepping their crops for the rains to come and... As the, as the approach of the rain comes, people have the least amount of money that they have per year because they're waiting. They're spending a lot of resources to then reap the benefits of their crops. So at the time the rains first come, the crops are not mature and ready for harvest and for sale. People are desperate for resources, and one of those resources is water. The wells dry up in neighborhoods, so you have to pay. And so if you don't have the money to pay for the water, you are subject to collecting it in risky places. Some of those places are in streets or in rivers. And because sanitation practices aren't what they are in the United States, trash and fecal matter exist openly. And so cholera is relatively rampant when there's heavy rains because it will filter through fecal matter or trash and people then collect that water to use for drinking. And if they don't have the money to purchase fuel to boil their water over a fire, and for drinking, they will consume that water and cholera tends to break out. So all that is to say, I think that without necessary kinds of infrastructure, the, the extremes of weather 
will probably make it more difficult for people to be able to live healthier lives. The other thing that I'll say about water is the second year that I was there, the second rainy season, was a very dry rainy season. And that part of the world, South Africa, Botswana, Swaziland, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, will likely get less rain as climate change worsens. And that puts a, a serious strain on people because the price of vegetables goes up astronomically and people can't afford to eat that. So typically what people will do is they will consume what's called masa or shima, corn flour enriched with water, and they will, it fills the belly, it's carbohydrates, there aren't really too many nutrients, and people will eat that to get them to a point where they can't afford again different vegetables. If that point doesn't come, people will eat that for weeks on end. And so adherence to good nutrition will be exacerbated by the effects of climate change. It sounds like climate change, socioeconomic problems, and public health are kind of creating this nexus in Mozambique that will only kind of become more difficult as climate change exacerbates those problems. Yes. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there are a lot of ways that people haven't understood how climate change will affect them in Mozambique. I was actually about to ask you about that. Do you think there is an awareness? Do people talk about it? Is this something that is being actively worked on since... We here in Boston are having this conversation. We understand how changing rain and weather patterns are going to affect them. Is this a conversation that's being had there at all? That conversation isn't had a lot of the time. There isn't the level of measurements and information dissemination that people have access to. So when there is a dry season, people are frustrated, but it isn't. there isn't the connection to that. This is climate change. The connection is like, oh, this is a very hot year. We'll have to struggle through this one and hopefully next year will be better. There isn't the knowledge that there are things that can be done by individuals all around the world to affect the climate in a way that would mitigate issues or challenges that, that they're dealing with. That makes sense. It, when you have much more present, pressing issues, and maybe it's something we talk about at a different scale more in the U.S. or, or more developed country, where even here we look at you know education and public health issues, and it's hard to get climate change on the table in terms of even talking about it or connecting it to all these things. So it makes sense when you have way more pressing issues to not make these larger picture kind of connections. Right? Exactly. I think that's a good point. The day-to-day -day concerns are much larger than the longer-term, broader things that people are thinking about. So at the end of your two years in Mozambique, you knew you were returning to the U.S. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do next? And how did your experiences in Mozambique change your perspective and inform what you wanted to do with your future career decisions? So there are two threads to this. The first is right after I arrived in my village, I was invited to go to the highest point in the village by some friends. This was actually Thanksgiving, the day of Thanksgiving in the United States. And I remember feeling I was missing my family. It was three months after I had gotten there. So I was invited by some friends to go to the highest point, which is unremarkable other than that there is a missionary placed across and on top of this hill and it offers 360-degree views of our village. I remember climbing up the hill to get to the highest point, and we were passing homes that were made of mud and brick, and people were outside cooking over coals without electricity. I remember passing them and then getting to the top of this hill and looking out, and it was dusk, and there was a glare from all of the rooftops that are made out of tin shining back in our eyes. 
And it was preposterous to me at the time to think that a place that receives 300 days of tropical sun doesn't have the infrastructure set up so that people can access electricity. People don't, couldn't afford it in these places. So that was the first thing that, that struck a chord with me to, to make me think that, well, the pieces exist. If they exist here, they exist other places in the world. And it's a matter of fitting them together and finding the right kinds of connections and collaboration to make that system whole. The other thing is, no matter where you go in Mozambique, no matter how poor the people are, everybody has a cell phone. And so to me, that spoke to the power of advertising and business and manufacturing. And so I was thinking about the combination of those two things, of how powerful business can be and how to leverage the power of businesses and companies and combine it to, in some way, affect the lives of people to make them easier or better or allow them to access things that they don't have access to. For a while, I was thinking about applying to school, to graduate school, to learn more about this, to study this more intentionally. But I also wanted to test to see what was out there in the workforce, what kinds of careers related to this that I could get involved in. So when I got back, I spent a lot of time applying for jobs and studying for entrance exams in a graduate school. And I spent about half of my day doing each. And then uh, eventually I got an interview with FSG and it went from there. So FSG, Foundation Strategy Group. Can you tell us a bit about what FSG does and what you do there? Sure. So FSG is a mission-driven consulting firm that works to create social change. And there are a few theories by which it attempts to do so. The idea that most resonated with me is called shared value. The idea that if you can link a social challenge to a business opportunity, you're not doing one-off corporate social responsibility projects. You're not affecting a small subset of people one time or a few times. It becomes a sustainable model where you're growing your business and helping those around you in a sustainable way. So in my work, I do work a lot with shared value. I also work with one of the other pillar ideas, which is called collective impact, which is loosely the idea that if you can align the actions of social entities, both private and public in an area to collectively address an issue, you have a much higher percentage chance of achieving your outcomes. So in our work, largely the goal is to create equity among different socioeconomic classes and race through our consulting, but also find ways to nudge or move businesses towards this idea of shared value to create value for those in the area in which they work. That's awesome. Is there any projects that have gotten you back to working in public health in any way? So a project that I'm working on currently um, is with the Bill and Linda Gates Foundation, and there are a host of international organizations like the WHO, UNICEF, and Gavi working together to improve the immunization supply chain in several developing countries to create pathways for people to have access to vaccines. So some of the metrics are they want a higher percentage of individuals to have access to vaccines. At the same time, they want the vaccines that they are delivering to have a high potency rate. So some of that is in making sure that cold chain equipment is readily available, financed and in place in the countries and in places where there is regular electrical output or power so that vaccines can stay cold as they're being delivered. And part of that is finding ways to work with governments and local organizations to deliver vaccines to what they refer to often as the last mile, the places in rural areas where it's very difficult to get vaccines. And this project is personally interesting for me because 
I saw the other side of this while in Mozambique, going to rural hospitals. And now I'm able to peek behind the curtain and see how those that control the purse strings discuss it and plan it and work together to implement these projects. So you talked a bit about the conversations being had by the, the people holding the purse strings. How often does climate change come up in those discussions? So climate change is discussed in these conversations and it's the perspective is that it will continue to cause complications for vaccine delivery, especially as temperatures rise. Keeping vaccines cold enough to get them to the last mile is going to be more challenging if there isn't regular electrical output. So it's a factor, but it's not one of the main factors that are discussed. So it's kind of an undertone of the conversation. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Interesting. Yeah. It's something that people are in the discussions, people are aware of it and everyone knows it's going to be something that, that will ne- need to be considered. Right now, it's more about setting up the structure and less about how do we mitigate for climate change right now. So these goals that we're working on now are 2020 goals. After that first phase is where I think climate change will play a larger role. It's interesting because I feel like we see that in so many conversations and we know that climate change is going to be impacting the system, but why why do we kind of push it down the road and try to set up the system in the first place? Why wouldn't we just take into account what the projections are looking like and what challenges will look like? Because it's not even going to be that long of a time scale. I mean, you might start seeing changes and more dramatic changes in five to 10 years. And so you're setting up for 2020, but what about 2025 and 2030? how much time would it save to just incorporate it from the get-go or or how do we kind of change that mindset? I think that's the right. (laughs) I agree with that. I think humans are very complicated. And when you, when a lot of these groups are thinking about improving lives of people of of new babies, for example, that Mm -hmm. are born, they need vaccines immediately. And so their focus is is more on the immediate. I think it's Mm -hmm. similar so the way we had talked about Mozambicans thinking about their daily needs as opposed to right. the climate. I mean, that shows the broader issue with climate change, right? And it's mm-hmm. what we talked about before also. It's that there's pressing needs that are here right now. And even though we that have the time and the energy and the mm-hmm. resources to kind of focus on the effects of climate change, there really is a hierarchy of needs and there mm-hmm. are pressing needs that are here now. So as we wrap up, I'm going to throw a tough question at you. What does a perfect future look like for you? So we've talked a lot about our hopes for our generation and our children on the previous episodes of the podcast, but what do you think needs to change in the world that we're living in and what part do you want to play in that change? I think a perfect future from my perspective now is an acknowledgement that there are different ways of conducting business that a pursuit of wealth can create benefits to others with tweaks. And I think that with a little bit of more intention and understanding of how collaboration can create conditions that foster the world that we want to see, we can achieve these kinds of things. And moreover, I have seen these things in our work. I've seen community groups that are willing to put the needs of the community above themselves and to think more carefully about the kind of world they want to inhabit for me, I think I want to I wanna play a role in generating momentum for this concept and show how collaboration can benefit all kinds of people. 
Well, John, thank you so much for being here. This has been great. We hope to have you back sometime in the future. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe on your favorite listening platform. And follow us on Instagram at Cooler Earth. Stay tuned for next week's episode. And thanks for listening. Stay cool.